In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine being one of Pharaoh's court magicians when Moses came with that message from the Lord, from the God of Israel, demanding, let my people go. Imagine being one of Pharaoh's magicians in the Egyptian court that day. Moses spoke. Pharaoh laughed. This Lord, this God of Israel, he was no match for Pharaoh or for Pharaoh's gods. Powerful gods did not let their people become slaves. And everybody knew that the gods of Egypt were the greatest and the most powerful in the entire world. This Lord, this Yahweh, this God of a poor and subjugated people, this God hiding unknown in the desert for hundreds of years, who was he to be sending a prophet to mighty Pharaoh and making demands? Pharaoh laughed. And the whole court, I expect, including the magicians, laughed with Pharaoh. Silly Moses. He could have had everything. Moses was born of the Hebrews. And yet he was chosen out of the river, taken out of that little ark by Pharaoh's daughter, and raised in the royal courts. The gods of Egypt, they thought, showed this poor Hebrew amazing favor. And what a fool to give it all up. Hiding in the desert like an outlaw. No one's even heard of him for 40 years. And there he met that, that pathetic God of his own pathetic people and chose that God over the gods of Egypt. The gods who had shown him such amazing favor. And then to come to Pharaoh, making demands and promising disasters and calamities. Everybody laughed at Moses. Oh, look. He can turn his brother's staff into a snake. Neat trick. But the magician said, so can we. And they did. And Pharaoh sent Moses packing. And then that first plague that Moses had promised, that first plague came and the Nile turned to blood. Uh-oh. They had not expected that to actually happen. But they could do it too. Of course, the real trick, the real trick was turning the water back into water. Maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. But thankfully, Pharaoh didn't ask them to do that. And then the frogs everywhere in the streets, and their houses, and their beds, and their ovens, and their toilets, and their pots. This God of Israel had power, and they were surprised. But it was nothing they couldn't do themselves, and do it they did. Pharaoh nodded smugly at them as they too caused frogs to come up out of the Nile, just like Moses had. And they nodded back and smiled at Pharaoh, but I think they had to admit at that point, they were feeling a little bit nervous about all of this. And then the third plague. Aaron struck the dust of the earth with his staff. 
And the dust flew up and turned into gnats, and gnats, and more gnats, and they covered everything. And Pharaoh looked at his magician, snapped his fingers. You do it too. And they nervously took their staves and they struck the dust of the ground as well. And nothing happened. And they knew, and he knew, whatever Pharaoh might claim about being Lord of the earth, his power and the power of his magicians and his gods was limited. Why did they have power over the Nile? I don't know. I think probably because the Nile was a source of Egypt's life. And those gods had power there, and so did Pharaoh. But no more than that. Ever since Moses had turned the river to blood, the magicians and surely Pharaoh had been troubled. This was their territory. This was their domain, and the domain of their gods. That puny god of the Israelites whom Moses had met out in the desert, he should not have had power in Egypt. He should not have had power over the Nile. And so while Pharaoh put on a show of defiance and self-assurance, the magicians worried. This God of Israel was more powerful than they thought. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we forget that the world was a very different place before Jesus was raised from the dead on that first Easter morning and before the gospel went out like a shockwave around the world. Whatever they were, demons, something else, whatever, the gods of the pagans, or at least some of them, were real. Jesus in the gospel, however, stripped them of their power. And everybody noticed it. The Greek philosopher Plutarch wrote a treatise trying to explain why the gods of the Greeks suddenly went dead silent in the first century. They're oracles to whom for hundreds of years people had gone to receive wisdom and revelation. Their oracles were suddenly mute. Athanasius wrote about the same phenomenon in his treatise on the incarnation of the word of God. But of course, Athanasius knew the answer. It was Jesus. The power of the devil to deceive the nations was broken for good. And his kingdom was taken from him. The true light, as St. John says, had come into the world and the darkness was driven away and the world has never been the same since. And over a thousand years before that happened, Pharaoh and his magicians, they got a foretaste of what was to come in Jesus. That day as the magicians struck their staffs over and over and over again on the ground in frustration, trying to call forth gnats as Moses had done. But I think knowing all along that they had met their match. That day those Egyptian magicians were forced to acknowledge the greatness of the God of Israel. This is the finger of God, they said to Pharaoh warning him, advising him, Your Highness, I think you better pay attention to Moses. This is the finger of God. This is no trick. This is real. This God has more power than we do. Probably more power than you do, sir. 
and we think maybe even more powerful than our gods have. They warned Pharaoh. But as we read over and over in that story in Exodus, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And it would take seven more plagues, each showing the power of the Lord over the earth, and most most importantly, over Pharaoh and his gods. Seven more plagues before Pharaoh was finally broken. And even then, after letting the Hebrews go, Pharaoh changed his mind. He sent his army after them. And in another display of his might, the Lord parted the sea to deliver his people and then used it to drown the army of Pharaoh, the greatest army in the world. The gods of Egypt survived Rather than acknowledge the Lord and give him glory, Pharaoh and his scribes wrote that whole episode out of their history. They forgot about it. And their gods went on. Their gods survived the conquest of the Greeks over Egypt, and their gods survived conquest by the Romans. But Jesus rose from the grave and robbed their master of his power and of his kingdom Jesus bound him and cast him into the pit. And finally, the gospel, tradition says it was St. Mark in the lead going to Egypt. The gospel marched into that country, and no one there to this day anymore worships Isis or Osiris or Anubis or any of their weird gods. But every Sunday in Egypt, Christians continue to this day to gather to praise Jesus and to give glory to the God of Israel. To quote those ancient pagan magicians, this is the finger of God. The world has changed because of Jesus. I don't think we think about that enough. Now, think about our gospel today. We just read... And imagine being the descendants of those Hebrews who had fled from Egypt under God's protection, who saw their God and all his glory defeat Pharaoh and his gods. Imagine being the descendants of those Hebrews who passed through the waters of the Red Sea with unmoistened foot as we sing. Imagine being the descendants of the people who had met the Lord in the cloud and the lightning on Mount Sinai and who had followed the Lord into the promised land as he once again defeated the gods of Canaan just as he had defeated the gods of of, of Egypt. Imagine being the descendants of those very people and being raised on those very stories and having your identity integrally tied up in the narrative of the Exodus and every year at the Passover taking part in that narrative yourself and the Lord's deliverance. Imagine then being unable or obstinately unwilling to recognize the God of Israel at work again over the powers of evil. It seems like once you've seen God work that way, once you've seen the finger of God at work, you ought to recognize it when it comes again. It seems like it should have been unthinkable that they would deny that God was at work, but that's exactly what we, re- we, what we read in the gospel today from Luke 11. So again, here's what Luke writes in verses 14 to 16. 
He says, now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So Luke says there were lots of people who saw the God of their fathers, the God of the Passover, the God of the Exodus. There were lots of people who saw him working through Jesus, and they gave him glory, and they believed. A lot of them believed, even though so many things about Jesus didn't, didn't add up or didn't make sense to them, or didn't meet the expectations that, that people had for who and what the Messiah was to be and do. But what they did know was that in the Messiah, the Lord would visit his people and set this world to rights. In a world broken by sin, the Messiah would set things to rights. He would, as Tolkien once said, make all the sad things come untrue. And that's just what Jesus was doing. And anybody with eyes to see could see it happening. Now, they had expected, they thought that the Messiah would come probably in a chariot, like King David. Some thought he would lead a violent revolution against Rome. Most people thought at least he would somehow get rid of the Romans, and and, and he would set up his throne in Jerusalem to rule the nations. And Jesus, at least so far, not only hadn't lived up to that, but really didn't look the part. But... They followed him around, and he was causing the blind to see, and the deaf to hear, and the mute to speak. He was casting out devils. He was preaching good news to the poor. All the things the prophet had said the Messiah would do. The sad things were becoming untrue. And so even if he didn't fit everything they thought he was supposed to fit, they believed. They had questions. That would get worked out, they thought. They believed. But, of course, not everybody. There were some who were so dead set on their preconceived ideas about the Messiah that they they just couldn't believe the obvious. Luke says some of them demanded signs, as if what Jesus was doing wasn't enough. Here's Jesus casting out a demon and healing a mute man, and they say, hey, Jesus, can you do a sign for us to prove you're the Messiah? And then there were others that would rather blaspheme the work of the Lord than admit they might be wrong about the Messiah. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, they said to dismiss him. In other words, he's in cahoots with the demons. That's why they do what he says. Beelzebul was a pagan Philistine god. So here's Jesus He goes to the synagogue every Sabbath. He says amazing things, godly things. He performs signs just as the prophets had said. He gives credit and gives glory to the Lord. But now he's casting out demons and they say, it's it's witchcraft. He's one of them. That's why he's able to do it. Back in chapter 12, Jesus referred to this kind of thing as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And his point was that it puts a person in very dangerous territory. The Messiah was the Lord's provision for the salvation of his people from the coming judgment. His only provision. If you let Jesus pass by, 
No one else is going to come to save you. So to attribute Jesus' power and works to devils, that's pretty much the ultimate statement of disbelief, the ultimate rejection. I mean, it's not that people who made such foolish accusations couldn't at some later point change their mind and and believe in the future. But Jesus warns them because such obstinate unbelief, such unbelief that insists on such stupid and outlandish explanations for what Jesus was doing, that sees him glorifying God and then says, oh, but he's practicing witchcraft. It doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, it's blasphemy. And it has at its root a heart that has been hardened against the Lord. A heart that his people had seen before in Pharaoh. And we all know how that went for Pharaoh, don't we? And so did they. No matter what great things the Lord did, Pharaoh's heart was unmoved. When the day of the Lord came to Israel, those people, even though they thought they were the faithful ones, even though they thought we're defending the Lord and we're defending his people from false messiahs, if their hearts continued in their hardness and unbelief, they would be swept up in the judgment and wind up not much different than the Egyptians had. As an aside, brothers and sisters, be cautious yourselves not to fall into similar traps. I was writing this. I couldn't help but think about the last month as the Internet was abuzz, which is probably putting it mildly, but the Internet was above about events happening at a college in Indiana. Some people called it a revival. And then there were other people who loudly denounced it as, at best, man-made, and at worst, even possibly demonic. And it highlights the need for us to be circumspect about those kinds of accusations. Jesus himself warned his disciples. Remember, they saw one day, they saw someone casting out demons in his name. But this guy did not have the apostolic franchise. They didn't know who he was. And so they tried to stop him. And do you remember Jesus warning them? He said, if he's acting in my name... If he's not against us, he's with us. Let him alone. He's doing our work. Now, the Spirit works in the church and in Christians, usually in ordinary ways. But every once in a while, the Spirit does something extraordinary. And if the Spirit could only work through churches and Christians that are perfect, he'd never get any work done, would he? Because we've all got problems. No one's doctrine is perfect. None of us is as holy as we ought to be. So when God moves through his church and when he moves through his people, it will always be through imperfect people and imperfect churches and imperfect movements. Even as the Spirit breathes new life into his people, we remain imperfect Christians in imperfect churches. So if we do see something happening, and people say there's a revival, but we look at it and we say, well, it's promoting heresy, or it's promoting unholiness, or if it's grounded in false prophecies or spinning them off, if it's directing people away from God's word or from the Jesus we know through scripture, 
it's safe to say that is not a move of God. But when a movement, however imperfect it may be, when a movement is pointing people to Jesus and to the Word, and it causes people to pursue holiness and makes them better stewards of God's grace and of the gospel, brothers and sisters, give it the benefit of the doubt and pray that it truly will bring revival and reformation. Now, back to Luke. Knowing how silly this accusation of witchcraft is, Jesus responds. In verses, 12, or verses 17 to 23, he says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, and he's talking about your sons, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. They are so opposed to Jesus, they haven't thought through the logic of their accusations. Why would the Satan be shooting his own forces in the back in the middle of the battle? And Jesus, the battle with evil was coming to its climax. The devil knew it. In fact, he's already losing at this point. As Jesus says, like somebody breaking into a strong man's house and tying him up and stealing his stuff, Jesus has already broken into the devil's house and robbed him of his power. He's preparing to take back his kingdom, and he's showing everyone by bossing around the devil's minions. And the devil was powerless to do anything about it. And Jesus also says, he says, think about it. You've got exorcists among your own people. I don't think you've ever questioned them about being in cahoots with the devil. Why would you think I would be? Your own people are going to come and judge you on that account. And then Jesus makes a very deliberate point of recalling their memory to the exodus. And to the magicians of Pharaoh with that statement. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They knew the Old Testament. They knew their own story. So they could not have missed this illusion. So much of what Jesus was doing, and before him what John the Baptist had done, all of it was pointing people back to the events of the Exodus, and Jesus and John did this to make the point that the Lord was on the verge of acting again to deliver his people, just as he once had in the past. Had these gospel lessons through the Jessima Sundays and and through Lent now, and repeatedly we see John and then Jesus sort of acting out these prophecies, doing these actions that show that Jesus is reenacting the history of his own people because God is about to lead a new exodus. And so this bit about the finger of God, it's a rebuke. 
Jesus is reminding them that even Pharaoh's magicians were able to recognize the God of Israel at work. And their knees quaked in fear to think of what was to come. Jesus is saying, if pagan magicians could recognize the Lord at work, shouldn't the Lord's own people, for goodness sake, shouldn't the Lord's own people be able to recognize him so much the easier? What does it say about the state of Israel when the Messiah comes and is so obviously doing all the things the prophets had said he would, but his own people not only reject him, but dismiss his power as demonic? And that's what Jesus gets at in the next few verses with this this odd little story in verses 24 to 26. He says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, the wilderness, the desert, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This isn't a method or a theology of exorcism. It's Jesus' commentary on the state of Israel and a rebuke of his own people. For a thousand years, they had known reform movement after reform movement. Or in modern evangelical terms, revival after revival. In the days of the judges, the people repeatedly, they would stray from the Lord. And so he would allow some pagan nation or ruler to come and and oppress them. And then they would repent And they would cry out to him, and they would reform themselves, and the Lord would come and deliver them over and over and over. Repeatedly, the kings had tried to reform the nation. And in more recent years, they'd had reforms and times of national repentance, the days of Ezra, the time of the Maccabees. And this is what the Pharisees were all about another reform movement to get the Lord's people back to being faithful to Torah. And all of those movements for reform, all of them were good. But none of them ever solved the real problem. Jesus compares Israel to a man with a demon. The demon's cast out. It goes wandering for a while. Doesn't find a good place to settle. Nowhere to rest. So I'm going to go back and see what my old house looks like. And he gets there, and he finds the man, and discovers that while he's been gone, the man's cleaned house. He looks far more attractive than he did before. I guess demons leave the house a mess. And so he goes and gets a bunch of his friends, and they return to the man, and now the man's worse off than before. Jesus is saying, just, just so with Israel. Just so with my people. They need the law written on their hearts by the Spirit because the law written on stone tablets, as good as it was, was never enough. Israel needed love for God inscribed on her heart. She needed to be indwelt by the Spirit. She needed to have her affections turned to the Lord. And here, in light of the accusations being made against him, Jesus puts it in terms of demonic possession. But however it's made, the point is that Israel desperately needed a work of the Lord in her midst, if anything were to truly change for good. A work unlike any the people had ever seen before. And here is Jesus doing just that. 
fulfilling the promises the Lord had made through the prophets. And instead of coming to him in joy and in belief, they're chalking up his power to the devil. So this is a statement of grief over the state of his people, but it's also a call to repentance and faith. It's a warning against the judgment to come. And hearing him, this woman from the crowd speaks up. And she highlights the discouraging fact that even the people who believed, even the people who saw the Lord at work in Jesus and were excited about it, even many of them still didn't really get it. Even they needed a work of God done in them. In the final verses of the gospel, verses 27 and 28, Luke says, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I imagine this woman was rooting for Jesus from the beginning when he showed up wherever this took place. And she was so disappointed to see people chalking up Jesus' power to to being in cahoots with the devil. So she was rooting for Jesus during the exchange. And then there was that gotcha with the people who accused him. Beelzebub. Just wow. What kind of messed up people would accuse Jesus of that? And Jesus had that gotcha moment with them. And they didn't have anything more to say. And she's like, ah, Jesus won. He's amazing. Jesus knew his Bible. And that bit about comparing those guys to Pharaoh's magicians, that was just genius. He totally shamed them. And he was so smart and he was so witty and he could do miracles. What an amazing guy. Maybe she had a son who hadn't turned out quite so well and had been a disappointment. And she knew what that was like. So she cries out, seeing Jesus in this whole exchange. What a boy! Your mama is truly blessed to have you as her son. And it was true. Gabriel had announced to Mary. What did he say? Blessed are you among women. But that was never the point. The Egyptian magicians recognized the power of God at work in Moses, but they still stood with Pharaoh in the end. This woman and many others, they went a step further. They saw God at work in Jesus, and they praised him for what they saw. They were enthusiastic about it. But brothers and sisters, it's not enough to see God at work and and clap your hands and say, Oh, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful and exciting? Praise the Lord! Remember when people came to Jesus and said, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Remember what he said? He took that occasion to make a vital point about the gospel. He said, no, my mothers and brothers are here. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In other words, the kingdom is not made up of those who acknowledge that God has worked when they see his finger. Nor is it merely made up of those who see him at work. And praise, praise God, he's at work. What an amazing thing. The kingdom is made up of those who give up everything to follow Jesus in faith. The way to the kingdom is obedience. To drop everything, to set aside our own agendas and false ideas of the Messiah and the kingdom, 
and simply to follow Jesus. Friends, think on that this morning as you come to the Lord's table. At the table, we recall what the Lord has done for us. This is our Passover moment. We recall what the Lord has done for us and for all of creation in and through Jesus. At the table, we not only recall, but we participate ourselves in that great exodus in which Jesus has has led us out of our bondage to sin and death through the water of baptism and into the kingdom and into the Spirit. We have seen the finger of God at work through the Messiah. Lest we forget when he invites us to his table, we're reminded every single week. We have seen the finger of God at work through the Messiah. Now respond in faith. Not just as enthusiastic spectators, but by truly following Jesus in faith, in repentance as we set aside every distraction, every idol and as we walk with him in obedience. Be a people immersed in his word. Be a people who stick close to our Lord in prayer. Be a holy people. Be light in the darkness. And stand firm in faith amidst the storm, knowing that Jesus has won the victory. Brothers and sisters, come to the table. And remember the events by which God has redeemed us. And most importantly, the one by whom God has redeemed us. Let's pray. Almighty God, consider the heartfelt desires of your servants, we pray. And stretch out the right hand of your majesty to defend us against all our enemies. Purify our disordered affections so that we may behold your eternal glory and walk in obedience to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.